If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The old Scottish proverb, always drink your whiskey with your gun hand to show your friendly intentions. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South podcast. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, we are second episode of season two. Yes, sir. And I know we're going to add a new segment, but before we do that, mm-hmm. it's been a couple weeks with the snow and everybody's been snowed in. Tell me what's going on with the build. Well, it's going okay. Uh, again, uh, it's, it's like I keep saying, it's that learning curve. I hadn't got around yet, but we are, we are going to upholstery Monday with the seats. Uh, we're going to, we're right now in the process of getting lighting and wiring done, uh, so hopefully, maybe in the next month, maybe. So maybe we'll Janie be will be ready to go speeding yeah, through Parable. We'll take. We'll be driving Miss Janie. All right. Yeah. You want to introduce our our new segment? Yeah, we. I thought this would be a really neat thing that we do. Um, what happened today in Kentucky history? What happened on today in Kentucky history? So. Well, I don't know, but I'm, I guess you're about to tell me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, in this book right here, we'll tell you. Right. <laughs> February the 25th is today, and uh, in 1938, the state purchased the William Whitley House in Lincoln County, Kentucky. Which is the county right next to us. Yes, uh-huh, and William Whitley was an early pioneer, for those that don't know. He built a fortress, he, supposedly the first brick house in Kentucky. And they, the family called it the Guardian of the Wilderness Road because it was just a fortress then. And at that time, you know, stone houses and brick houses were the way to go because Indians couldn't burn them. Um, they, were, they were a fortress. And it gave more protection to shoot from. It gave more protection. So they were, uh, they were some of the earliest houses that we've talked about before in Kentucky were stone and brick and supposedly this was the first brick house in kentucky now they're also restoring another house there that they think that he built right now and i've been to that site a couple times and it's really a neat neat old house a big old federal style brick house 
So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not only history, but it's going on today. We're making history today by restoring this house and learning a little bit more about it. Also, in 1964, Muhammad Ali, born Cassius Clay, was the first heavyweight champion. He defeated Sonny Liston in seven rounds. And you know, Brian, as crazy as this sounds, Star, especially our younger listeners, I was laying across the bed listening to this fight on the radio. Really? I remember it distinctly. And I remember that I, that was an earth-shaking event at that time because Sonny Liston was quite – he was quite uh, a, a powerhouse. Power. Yes. Uh-huh. And this young fighter come up all, you know, cocky and everything, and nobody gave him a chance, but he, he did it. Well, that's awesome. All right, you know, Kentucky's the largest bourbon-producing state in the country with a rich history and reputation for producing fine bourbons. Our guest tonight is the sole owner of Veach Bourbon, LLC. He's a bourbon historian and a member of the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. He's written and contributed five books and is the foremost authority on bourbon history. Michael Veach, welcome to Uncommon History of the South. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Michael. Always a pleasure. Welcome. Well, we've been looking forward to having you on because bourbon is booming. And uh, what, uh, what a better person to have on the podcast than somebody that knows all about bourbon. Yes, and uh, a member of the Bourbon Hall of Fame. Yep. And that is very impressive. Michael, how'd you get interested in bourbon? Well, I always tell people I'm the uh, luckiest student to come out of the University of Louisville's history department. Um, I was working on a master's degree in medieval history when uh, Nick Morgan from what is now Diageo called the university and said they were putting together a... Uh, archive out at the old old Fitzgerald distillery in Shively and was looking for a graduate student to help them uh, put it together during the summer. Mm -hmm. It's going to be six weeks during the summer, uh, uh, 35 hours a week and $9 an hour. And in 1991, I uh, hadn't worked full time for a while and uh, uh, didn't have classes and everything. So I said, yeah, I'll take that. And, um, you know, they kept bringing more and more materials in. Um, I ended up going for eight weeks during the summer and then having to go back and do my classes. They told me to keep working for uh, uh, 10 to 20 hours a week uh, while I had my classes, whatever I thought I could do. And uh, when I finished my classwork, they uh, hired me full time. Wow. Well, that's neat. Uh I want to jump into, we'll talk a little bit about the early history that started its origin, uh, if we can, Michael. Uh, as, do we know what was the first bourbon distiller in Kentucky and where was that? You know, that's a good question. I wish you could uh, tell me that. Uh, there is not a whole lot of written information uh, out there to find out. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that when people came into Kentucky, they had to bring everything that they needed to survive, and stills were a vital part of survival at that time. Uh, I think Sam Thomas, uh, the late historian here of Louisville and, uh, and Kentucky history, uh, I was at a presentation that he was sponsoring or, or moderating, I should say, down at the Louisville Public Library with a bunch of distillers on it. And someone asked him that question and he says, 
He has no idea, but most likely it was whoever was making uh, George Rogers Clark whiskey for him on Corn Island. <laughs> <laughs> Corn Island had, had named yeah. corn for a reason, didn't it? Yeah. So, you know, there people had things, uh, you know, busy, hard life at that time. You know, everything from, you know, getting up in the morning and uh, um, um Clearing fields, planting fields, building outbuildings, building a cabin. Uh, you know, they worked from sun up to sun up, sundown, and uh, they didn't have time to write down a whole lot of things. So, uh, and of course, there wasn't any government regulations on it at that time. So, uh, the only real records that we have are whatever might be mentioned in correspondence between people. Would it would and, it be would it be fair to say that the first bourbon made was probably for their own use, and then if they had some excess, they might sell it to a neighbor or take it to town on trade day or something. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Well, it depends on what you're talking about here. You know, when we're talking, uh, um, uh, pioneer Kentuckians, we're talking whiskey, not bourbon, you know, bourbon, uh, the first mention written mention of bourbon is not until 1821. Mm-hmm. Well, what's and, the difference between bourbon and whiskey? Bourbon is a whiskey. Bourbon is a uh, uh, a corn whiskey uh, um, that's made here in Kentucky. Um, it is a uh, uh, different from corn whiskey. What we think of as corn whiskey in that it's aged in brand new charred oak barrels. Now, my theory as to why if you if you read my book, uh, Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage, um, my theory on how bourbon came about is very simple. You know, I spent 19 years working at the Filson Historical Society and doing uh, uh, some bourbon research and uh, while I was there. And I know from papers, there's the Filson, that the price of whiskey in... 1810 in New Orleans was the same as it was here in Kentucky. People weren't down there weren't paying much, if anything, for whiskey down in New Orleans. So, you know, the question became, you know, why bother? You know, if you can get the same price here in Kentucky and not have to have the expense of shipping it, why bother? Well, someone got the idea that we need to do something to sell our whiskey in New Orleans for a profit. Well, who are these people? What are they drinking? Well, New Orleans, of course, is a French ter- uh, colony. Very strong French background down there. What were they drinking? They're drinking French brandy. What was the difference between French brandy and our whiskey? It's aged and charred barrels. I think somebody said, let's make our whiskey taste more like French brandy, cognac, armagnac, by aging it in charred barrels and then selling it down in New Orleans. So that's what they did. Um, I think this happened. You you had the whiskey tax up until uh, 1802 when Thomas Jefferson repealed the tax. The tax comes back briefly in 1813, uh, 1814 uh, to pay for our second war of independence with Britain. 
but it's repealed in 1817. You don't see any mention of bourbon being for sale until 1821. So I think somewhere around the time that repealed that second tax, uh, someone got this idea, they started uh, putting it in charred barrels, and they started aging it to sell down in New Orleans. So this this kind of folk tale, I guess, for lack of a better term, of about them just burning the barrels by accident or over-scorching them and went ahead and used them and sent them down there, and they said, boy, we like that stuff, make some more of it. That is that kind of a fairy tale, Michael? Oh, that's a big fairy tale. Uh, okay. You're talking about the Elijah Craig story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the funny thing is, though, you see, there's two different stories. You know, one story is he had a fire in the barn that burned some of his bur- barrel stains, but evidently only on one side, because you know he decided <laughs> that he would that he would only you know he would go ahead and make a barrel out of them anyway. He just wouldn't tell anyone. You know, because Baptist preachers are known for being deceitful like that, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, that's how bourbon came about. Well, you know, that story is just, you know, total bull. <laughs> but then the other story is that he was a very parsimonious preacher, distiller. Uh, he had some used barrels that had uh, uh, fish in it. And in order to get the fish smell out of it, he decided he'd just burn the inside of the barrel, charred some to get the fish taste out of it. And uh, um, uh, he put his whiskey in it and he gave it the flavors of bourbon that we like. Well, there's a couple of things wrong with that story. The first thing is that, you know, you had different grades of barrels. The most expensive grade was what they called the milk barrel, the barrel able to hold liquid. That's what they would have put bourbon in. Salted fish, you don't spend that money on uh, on that quality of a barrel to ship. You know, you don't need to. It's a, it's a solid. You know, if a little salt leaks out, that's no big deal. But as a whole, it's all going to hold together. Wow. But even if someone did do that and put salted fish in a milk quality, you know, liquid quality barrel, I don't care how much you burn the inside. That barrel still going to taste like fish when you put yeah. your liquid in there and bourbon does not taste like fish. <laughs> no. no. Uh, what do you think the pioneer's view of bourbon was? It, you know, we think of it today in, you know, social drink, obviously. And was, was it like a, a, a medicine to them as well as a, a, a drink? I mean, did what were all the uses With of the- bourbon? Whiskey was very important to pioneer life. Now, you got to remember, you know, you're out here on the frontier. You know, things are tough. Hard cash specie is hard to come by. You know, it's hard enough when you're in New York or Philadelphia, you know, after the revolution to get hard specie, you know, because the nation didn't have that much going at the time. But when you get on the frontier, it was almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So, what were they doing? They were using, uh, they were bartering for the most part. And you could take, you know, a quart of whiskey into the, your local general store and barter it for, you know, a powder horn for a full powder or something, whatever you need, you know, some, you know a couple yards of cloth or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, they were bartering. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and they were bartering all the way up, you know, uh, to the point that people, if you look at the landings there uh, in the uh, Jefferson County Courthouse, you know, right up around even into the early 1800s, people are buying lands with barrels of whiskey. You know, George or uh, Abraham Lincoln's father, when he left Kentucky, he had like he took with him like six barrels of whiskey. He didn't do that because he was thirsty. He used those six barrels to buy his land in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that I've done a little so, research so, on you know running deeds and and uh, I'm sorry, not deeds, but uh, uh, wheels and things like that. And and you you see it, you know, you see you know four barrels of bourbon or four barrels of whiskey or whatever, and. Uh, your first impression is, man, that guy must have liked to drink. But no, that necessarily so. He, he, uh, like you said, it was used as, as currency. As currency, yeah. Do you know where was uh, did where was our first market? Was it New Orleans? Was that our first? Yeah, you, you got to realize that you know the, the natural market out of Kentucky is New Orleans or St. Louis downriver. It's easier to put things on a flatboat. Kentucky's blessed with more miles of navigable river than, than any other state, you know, east of the Mississippi. Um, so it's easy to get a, build a flatboat, put your goods on it, and send it to New Orleans. Now, you got to remember, though, that if you're talking, you know, 1790s up through about 1820, this is a very long and dangerous trip. You know, you get your goods, you put it on the boat, you send it down river. Um, you know, and, and even before uh, 1803, you had to deal with the Spanish. And most of the time, it wasn't until like 1898 or so that the United States had a treaty with the Spanish to even allow legal trade in New Orleans. And then so, a lot of people don't think about it, Michael. Then they had to come back, and they had to come up the Natchez yeah, Trace. Right. You got that's all those land pirates gotta, and all those people to waylay them on the way. <laughs> was not a well, it was, a, wasn't an easy trip, was it? As I said, it's a it's a very long, dangerous trip. You're going down the river. You got to deal with Native Americans and river pirates because you know your scalp's worth a lot of money to the British up in Detroit, mm-hmm. and you know they're more than happy to take your goods. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but, you know, Cave-In Rock in uh, southern Illinois was a huge den of river pirates. Yeah, the harps and the... What, yeah, the as a matter of fact, when I, was, yeah. Go ahead. when I was working at the Filson, um, we got a call from uh, uh, the Disney Corporation because they wanted to know about young E. Allison's papers. Allison was a, uh, a poet and a, and a playwright in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he wrote a play about pirates at Cave-In Rock. And part of that play, he wrote a song called The Derelict. And uh, The Derelict, you may recognize as being, you know, Yo-Ho-Ho and a bottle of rum. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I did not know but, that. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah, so that that was written by a Kentuckian, uh, not about pirates in the Caribbean like Disney wanted to use it for, but about pirates at, at Cave-In Rock on the Ohio River. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I said, once you got down to New Orleans, you sold your goods. You sold your flatboat. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of the uh, 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 houses, shotgun houses and such built in New Orleans 
that date back to that time were built out of Ohio Valley lumber from people that would sold their flat boats and they would tear the boats apart and make use the lumber to build houses. They had all these boats coming down and they couldn't before steam right. people people don't think about it today, but you know, before steam power you couldn't go against the current. Uh and so you all these boats would come in and no place to go out. So the, the obvious use for them was to, to use them for lumber. It's quite an industry, I way I understand it. Uh, Michael, can so answer? once they're down there, they had two choices about getting home. They could either catch a ship in New Orleans and sail around Florida and go, um, you know, go to the East Coast and come back into Kentucky the way they originally did, you know, when they had first immigrated here. Or they could walk back up the Natchez Trace. And, of course, the Natchez Trace was a very dangerous trip in itself. Uh, because, like you said, you had Native Americans and bandits that were willing to separate you from your money and, and uh, your scalp. And a lot of people say that's where Kentucky's horse racing industry came from. Because people would buy the fastest horse they could in, um, in New Orleans to make the trip home. Uh, with the theory is, is that you, as long as your horse was fast enough to get away from everyone else uh, chasing you, the bandits, then you were okay. Wow. Uh, and then once you got here, you had a fast horse to breed. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. What was the first distillery in Kentucky like, as we think of a distillery today, maybe that had stockholders and and uh, what was the first major That's easy. Distillery? That's easy to uh, um, uh, answer because the first really big distillery with stockholders and everything else was a distillery in Louisville, Kentucky, um, called the Hope Distillery. It was built about 1816 um, by a bunch of investors from uh, uh, New England, I believe mostly from Massachusetts. And... uh, they built a huge distillery, a uh, couple of really big pot stills. Uh, we're making, uh, uh, mashing, I think, uh, about three or 400 gallons at a time. Uh, they had, you know, these 500-gallon um, pot stills that they were making their whiskey with, and uh, evidently uh, nobody liked it and bought it because it went out of business within like three or four years. <laughs> <laughs> so they they weren't successful. They they didn't they they just didn't know how to make it well, right? I, I guess uh, people just like the uh, stuff that was being made on a smaller scale by the by the farmer distillers. Yeah, we was talking about. You said James C. Crow um, was the first guy to call use the term bourbon. I think you said in eighteen twenty one. Michael, is that actually? It wasn't Crow. Okay. Crow, Crow didn't come to America until the 1830s. Okay. But um, bourbon, you know, the first mention of bourbon is uh, 1821 in a um, actually Bourbon County newspaper, and there are people that say that uh, uh, it's named after Bourbon County bourbon is the problem with the story you know their story is is that you know it was getting down into into uh, new orleans and uh uh, people started asking for that bourbon 
Cassiani whiskey because the invoices had Bourbon County on it. Well, the problem is that they're saying um, uh, this story, but they're also saying it was Maysville, the, the port of limestone at that time, is where these invoices were. Well, the problem is uh, Maysville was only part of Bourbon County for a few years. And during those few years, uh, the Spanish controlled uh, uh, New Orleans. And there was no legal trade with the New Orleans at that time. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't trade going on, but it wasn't the type that you would call legal trade. It was smuggling. You know, you had to bribe uh, uh, Spanish officials and such and to get your goods down there and sell them. Good smugglers don't write invoices. <laughs> <laughs> I could understand why. <laughs> well, now, me... that story, that story, and the uh, Elijah Craig story both have similar origins in that they were both first written mentions that I could find of either one of those stories is like the 1880s, and this is the time during. Uh, 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 the growth of the prohibition movement and the distillers were trying to give themselves as strong a history as possible. And, uh, um, um, that's why they picked Elijah Craig to be their uh, first distiller because, you know, he was a Baptist minister, let the prohibitionists deal with that. Well, how, how, how did the uh, temperance movement and prohibition affect the bourbon industry here in Kentucky? Michael, can I ask you uh, another question before we get – I want to get into that temperance, but I want to back up just a second because I think this is important. Uh, bourbon County, Kentucky – now, you you, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my – I don't know where I – Bourbon County wasn't named because of bourbon whiskey. Bourbon was named because of – the name come from France, and and we named a lot of yeah. Our, it was the name of the French royal family. French and it royal was family. Named to honor King Louis for right. his help during the revolution. And our hatred for the British at that time, when we were naming a lot of these towns in Kentucky, like Paris mm-hmm. and different towns, Versailles, Versailles, and all, were named French names because of our hatred for the British. And then we, of course, ran our horses opposite direction the the Brits did, and all that. So the name, uh, people think of Bourbon County, they automatically probably think that, well, it was named for, because it started bourbon whiskey there. No, no. The, the name was there first, and then the whiskey came later. Is, am I right in that? Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Now, I'm sorry. I won't interrupt no, you. That's fine. No, that's fine. So how did the temperance movement and prohibition affect the bourbon industry here in Kentucky? Oh, it shut it down for 13 years. Actually, it shut down for 15 years because Prohibition actually starts um, with the First World War. When we entered the First World War, the government said we need alcohol to support the war industry. And, you know, because they learned early on that when you made your gunpowder using uh, um, uh, alcohol instead of water, it burned better. (laughs) You know, plus you're talking about a new industrial age where you had uh, uh, alcohol being used for antifreeze, it's being used for antiseptic, it's being used for anesthesia, it's still being used for medicine because, you know, 
people don't realize that even with the First World War, there wasn't a whole lot of medicines out there. Well, did the most of the distillers switch over to produce this, or did they just shut down? They during uh, uh, they produced beverage alcohol, or not non-beverage alcohol, I should say, for the war uh, up until 1920. You know, in 1919, the uh, 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 the 18th Amendment passed, and with the 18th Amendment, uh, 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 it shut down the manufacture of alcohol. So they had one year, it wasn't going to go into effect for a year after it passed. So they had one year to get ready for it. And um, once they did, you know, it was all shut down. Okay. Yeah. There was no beverage alcohol. You know, we talked about the barrels and how bourbon became. When did we, when did they start uh, packaging bourbon in bottles? See, that's another thing. Through most of the 19th century, it's all uh, the main package for selling whiskey by the distiller is the barrel because glass was very expensive. It would cost you as much uh, for the glass as it would for the whiskey, if not more. So people brought their own bottles, flasks, jugs, buckets, whatever they wanted to, <laughs> right. they, you know, to put it in to their liquor store or saloon, and they bought their, you know, quarter whiskey uh, uh, right out of the barrel. Well, that changes in the 1880s, late 1880s, early 1890s, when they patent uh, um, methods to uh, uh, machine blow glass. So that's when you start seeing uh, bourbon going into the glass, into bottles. Studying antiques a little bit in glass, I know I've got a collection of Kentucky glass works and Louisville glass works bottles and flasks. I think I can't remember was it Kentucky glass works first, then Louisville glass works, then they went to Kentucky glass works company or something. I, I can't remember, but uh, they they made a lot of these flasks and they had patriotic motives and things on them. And the reason they stayed on, I guess, is because we think of glass today as maybe disposable. Mm-hmm. But back then, I mean, they kept it. I mean, they kept it and get it filled with different things. And I'm sure bourbon was, whiskey was an important part of it. Uh, Michael, the, there, you know much about Carrie Nation. I know uh, the reason I bring her up is I'm from Perryville, Kentucky, and, and Carrie uh, was educated in Perryville. And there was a, a temperance uh, movement there by the early Methodist um, and uh, there's a stories about her uh, going to school there in Perryville and being influenced by some of the early Methodist uh, temperance movement there. Have you ever heard that story? I knew that she was from Kentucky originally. Um, Carrie Nation was a interesting character, but she really wasn't that influential on getting... Uh, prohibition in effect. Uh, she was really kind of a laughing stock. Um, you know, people really just didn't take her seriously. When when she tried to take her temperance speeches to uh, uh, England, they laughed her off the stage. Uh, what really brought about the temperance movement was the creation of the Anti-Saloon League. Because that moved the uh, uh, 
the emphasis off of alcohol itself and more towards the saloon. What the saloons represented to these people at that time was, you know, the nature of the United States was changing. The center population was becoming uh, a urban center population, not a rural. So there were a lot of people that were upset about that because, you know, the uh, power um, of government was shipping, uh, shifting from um, uh, rural America to urban America. You know, more and more people in the city, more and more uh, representatives in the House of Representatives and such. Well, the saloons, of course, were representative of the big city uh, uh, voting machines. You know, the, the bosses, the uh, boss tweed and all those. You know, if they needed votes, they went to the local neighborhood bar or tavern saloon and... Um, you know, got people to vote, the way, you know, the way they want them to vote. So by attacking that, you know, they were attacking that, uh, the urbanization. And of course, at the same time, they're attacking immigrants. You know, you had the uh, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, uh, people of the time who were very upset because there was a huge influence of, of uh, uh Irish and Italian and German that were Catholic. Um, you had uh, um, a lot of Jewish people coming in, and um, you had all this huge shift in the uh, uh, the demographics, and people were upset about it. So you got all this going on, and you start attacking the saloon as part of that, and that's the way that they were able to eventually get um, the uh, prohibition brought in. That and the fact that the major defense against prohibition for many, many years was from the beer industry, saying you can't attack our, attack our beer because if you do, you're attacking our German culture. And it's no, um, no coincidence that prohibition is passed in 1917, shortly after we go into the First World War. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, let's move on into modern times, so to speak. The last probably 20, 30 years, I guess, would be considered modern times. Uh, Mike, this, you know, <laughs> I heard this statistic and uh, it really shocked me. And then I guess, well, I don't know why it shocked me, but I guess I was, I was, I wasn't expecting that large a number. The latest statistics I had, there's two and a half more barrels of bourbon in Kentucky than there are people. Is that is that an accurate statement, or is it even more than that now? Uh, that's probably about accurate, because uh, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, Kentucky had a population of 4 million, and we had 4.5 million barrels of bourbon. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we're not up to 8 million now, barrels of bourbon. Uh, but you got to realize, that's not even where we were in the 1950s. In the 1950s, there were about 12 million barrels of bourbon here in Kentucky. Wow. Really? Yeah. You know, but the industry shrunk tremendously during the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, are, are we in the golden age of bourbon now? 
What was that? I, I didn't quite catch that. Say, are we in the golden age of bourbon now? Would you consider? Was uh, that debatable? Yeah, I would say, I would say so because you know technology has improved. You know, there's a lot of really good bourbon being made today. Uh, you know, back in the old days, there was a lot of really good bourbon made, but there's some that wasn't so good. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a lot of really good bourbon being made. You're going to find uh, um, uh, more and more. Um, Distilleries open. I think one of the things that uh, uh, has really helped uh, uh, the bourbon industry and Kentucky in particular is the uh, the birth of uh, bourbon tourism. Yeah, it absolutely amazes me as a child. Of course, being native here, grew up around this all my life, and drive by these old distillery buildings and things. And then, as a young person or as a, a young adult at that time, if somebody had came to me and said you know, this is going to be a major tourist attraction someday. I would have probably laughed at you, thought you lost <laughs> your mind, because I would think, why would anybody want to drive and see an old building like that? But there's a little more to it than just a building. And uh, But it is it is a fascinating industry. It's a fascinating thing, and I've been on some of the Bourbon Trail, been to several of the distilleries, and I, they're all very interesting. People uh, need to take advantage of that because – they are. Uh, you learn so much when you go. Every distillery has a different story, and it's not only yeah. the history, but how they make the product, how they're what they're doing to adapt to the market today. Um, and you, you know, one of the things that just shocked me was is how much grain <laughs> we're producing to keep all these distilleries going. And uh, it's just a fascinating. It's a fascinating industry right now in Kentucky. Do you know of uh, plans for a – I saw it a few years ago about a huge distillery going into Bardstown. Um, they had something like pyramids were going to be built, um, and I haven't heard any more about it. Do you Have you heard any more about that? I I heard those same stories, and I, I thought they were starting to do some work on it. Uh, then COVID hit, and I'm not sure, you know – I'll be honest with you. I haven't been for the last year. I haven't been out and around hardly anywhere because of COVID. You know, I was uh, uh, diabetic with some heart problems, so I, I'm a high risk. I don't want to get exposed and catch it because it'd pretty much be a death sentence for me. Well, with Michael, with this being the golden age and being the bourbon boom, you know, with every boom comes a bust. How how will this affect the bourbon market in the future? Well, I don't ever see a bust like what we had in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, there was a lot of things that the industry did to itself that caused that problem, those problems. Um, but I, I don't think that uh, we'll ever see even a, a huge decline. I, I think we'll see a leveling off and then shifting up and down. Uh, but I think there's a lot of things that have happened in the last 20 years that's going to prevent it from ever uh, becoming a big bust like it was before. And, you know, one of the things is bourbon tourism, you know. And uh, uh, bourbon has got a better reputation now than what it had uh, because people are coming here to do it. They, they, they see bourbon whiskey here in Kentucky very much like people see Napa Valley wine. Right. Um, you know, 
let me ask you, what's the difference between like now small batch bourbon is very popular. Is there a big difference between that and then just the regular bourbon? Well, you know, that, that's an interesting thing. Uh, um, there is no legal definition of small batch. Small batch means whatever the distiller wants you to think that it means. <laughs> okay, so it's a marketing tactic. So it's, a, so it's marketing. Now, um, with that said, you know, it can be better whiskey, you know, this, you know um, but it doesn't necessarily make it so. There are a lot of really good just main brand whiskeys out there um, that there are a lot of people who've come to appreciate here lately uh, in the last 20 years a lot. Uh, you know, you take a brand like Old Forester or Old Granddad. Uh, they're not expensive whiskey. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of, you know, it's not hard to find. And um, people drink it because it's just really good whiskey. Um, well, you, you get some that are uh, a lot more expensive and, uh, um, uh, have things like small batch or single barrel or, you know, finished in, you know, some wine cask, something like that. It costs you a lot of money. But is it really that much better than a bottle of Old Forester or Old Granddad or, you know, Wild Turkey or Maker's Mark? You know, that's a question people start to have to ask themselves. Well, I've seen um, you in several different documentaries, and you've talked about rectifiers. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what a rectifier is and maybe give some examples of, of some rectifiers today? Well, rectifier is a person, we, what we call them today is non-distiller producers. You know, for, for many, many years, Julian Van Winkle, and as a matter of fact, he probably, his business itself, he is a rectifier. He does not own a distillery. He has a contract with Buffalo Trace to make his whiskey for him, but his license is a rectifier's license. He buys the whiskey from Buffalo Trace and they put it into his bottles. That's a rectifier. Now, in the old days, rectifiers were people like that, but they were also people that would make what we call a blended whiskey today. You know, they buy neutral spirits, they buy some barrels of old whiskey, and uh, uh, they'd add some uh, caramel coloring and uh, uh, maybe a little fruit juice or something to their whiskey and mix it all together and bottle it up and sell it as a, as a whiskey. Then you had people that were buying grain neutral spirits and, and uh, um, not using any aged whiskey at all to uh, bottle their products and using that to sell as well, their. Uh, share the story about the gentleman that could make a nine year old, I think it was nine year old bourbon in a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a. a E.H. Taylor had a problem with uh, 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 Marion Taylor from Wright, the firm of Wright and Taylor. They weren't related. Uh, uh, T- Marion Taylor was from uh, uh, northern Alabama or northern Mississippi, something like that. And, of course, Taylor was a native Kentuckian. But Taylor, of course, had old Taylor. Marion Taylor had a brand. He... Um, 
that was called Old Kentucky Taylor. And that upset um, E.H. Taylor to start with, you know, because that's, you know, just imagine that, you know, old big letters, small letters abbreviated KY Kentucky, yeah. and big letters Taylor. But the worst part about it was it was a blended whiskey, a rectified whiskey. And when he went to court to sue over the trademark infringement, um, the lawyers for Marion Taylor said that this was a nine-year-old whiskey that they could make for you while you waited. <laughs> and the judge, you know, and it, you could tell exactly when Marion Taylor lost the court case because the uh, judge says, so you're telling me that if I drink this whiskey, it'll taste just like a nine-year-old whiskey. And the lawyer saying, yes, that's true. We've got chemical tests that prove it's got the same compounds. And that's when E.H. Taylor's lawyer says, well, we have a bottle of, uh, of real nine-year-old bourbon uh, uh, right here, and uh, we got a bottle of their product if you would like to try. And uh, that's when they lost the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you judge a good whiskey or a good bourbon? What, what do you look for in a bourbon? You know, everybody's taste is different. That's what I like to tell people. There is no wrong answer in bourbon. You know, if I taste apricots, caramel, and baking spices, and you don't, that doesn't mean anything. You might be tasting, uh, you know, instead of apricots, you're tasting ripe apples, and vanilla, and, and tobacco. Neither one of us is wrong because we don't have the same taste buds. So, so what what do they everybody has to look for what they like best in their own product. You know, that's what I like to tell people. If you like it, you you know, that's what the best whiskey is. What what you is know, the and, and you drink it I'm drink sorry, it the way you want to drink it. If you like it with uh, uh, uh bourbon and coke, I've always said that I always thought bourbon and coke was much better than coke's drink. <laughs> So they put a lot of different flavorings now. I mean, the 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 variety of bourbons is just crazy, isn't it? I mean, but yeah. the, so they put different fruits and different things in bourbon now to give it. No, no bourbon does not. Bourbon by that. law cannot have anything okay. except for the uh, the uh, whatever's made in the fermentation and uh, distillation and aging in the barrel. You cannot add any artificial flavors, colors, or anything. If you're tasting apricots in, uh, in your bourbon, that's because the yeast, when it created that beer, probably had a heavy fruit co component to it. You know, a lot of people don't realize, when you taste fruit or you taste a lot of different things, a lot of that is really just alcohols mm -hmm. that you're tasting in small quantities. Do you, do you have and to have... Different yeast, Different yeast tastes make different types of alcohols, uh -huh. different components. And, you know, Four Roses is a prime example of this. You know, they got five different yeasts that they use. They have one that's a heavy fruit yeast, another one's a light fruit yeast, another one's a spicy yeast. You've got a floral yeast, and you've got an herbal yeast. And these yeasts create flavors that fall into those families of flavors. Is limestone water... Uh, an essential product of bourbon now? Uh, not so much anymore. Um, 
you know, with the uh, uh, reverse osmosis process and everything, uh, a lot of distilleries uh, are not using limestone water anymore, uh, other than the fact that, you know, whatever comes out of the city water. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the distilleries in Louisville are using pretty much city water because the groundwater is all polluted. Right. So they're taking city water and treating it with reverse osmosis um, to do it. But, you know, if you do have a source, you know, like Maker's Mark or Woodford Reserve um, that has a good limestone water source, you know, it will add extra flavor to your whiskey. Well, I think there's a common misconception, too, that bourbon, and I may be wrong, bourbon, uh, a lot of people think bourbon can only be made in Kentucky. Is that true? No. Bourbon is a product of the United States. It can be made anywhere in the United States. Okay. Well, listen, I want to thank you for uh, taking time to be a part. Why don't you tell folks real quick where they can find your books or how they can hook up with you on social media? Okay. Uh, You can follow my uh, website uh, at bourbonbeach.com. You can find my books on Amazon. They're uh, Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage. And then with Susan Riegler, I did the uh, 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 Bourbon Tasting Notebook and the American Whiskey Tasting Notebook. Um, You can find those on Amazon. And um, if you're in Louisville, uh, you might see me out and around someday. So if you do, say hi. Are you on social media? Can people friend you? Oh, yeah. on Bourbon Beach on uh, Facebook or or uh, uh, Twitter or Instagram, uh, I'm there. They can find me. Well, thank you for taking time to be a part of uh, our podcast. Michael, we- thank thank you so much. It's just been fascinating. Uh, we we learned a lot, and I hope our our podcast listeners learned a lot. We uh, we uh, kind of done something a little different. We've been talking about doing bourbon for some time, and uh, we certainly enjoyed you being with us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. All right. To our listeners, thank you for being part of Uncommon History of the South podcast. If you would like to help support our podcast, please share our podcast with your friends. Make sure to subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app. Uh, And if you listen to our podcast on Apple, please leave a five-star review and a comment. This will help others find our podcast. And to find out more about the podcast and keep up with what we're doing, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, This is Uncommon History. It's been created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolfe.